Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are talking about Mission Impossible Rogue Nation and Mission Impossible Fallout, both of which were written and directed by Chris McQuarrie. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. Okay, so we are in... Week seven, our Summer Impossible season is coming to an exciting climax as next week, Dead Reckoning will be out and our episode, our patron-exclusive episode on Dead Reckoning will be out and available on the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon. Uh, Also, a thing to sweeten the deal, now, moving forward, as we said last episode, all of our episodes will be available ad-free on the Patreon. So get another reason to sign up. And if you haven't heard it yet, our Asteroid City episode is also available on Patreon. So lots of reasons to sign up, not the least of which is, of course, the climactic Dead Reckoning conversation that we're all very excited about. But first, we arrive here at the penultimate Mission Impossible episode as we are looking at entries five and six, the Chris McQuarrie entries into the Mission Impossible franchise. So we've tracked this IP across all its various iterations and Rogue Nation and Fallout are really interesting and really fun to see kind of where this IP has arrived at and kind of found its footing, which maybe makes it sound like it didn't have its footing before, but it there's something that really coalesced in these two that's like, okay, now it feels like it knows what it is for good. There's no longer a question of what the next movie in the series is going to be, whereas right. even after right. three and four, it was like, well, we'll see what happens when another director takes it over. Right. So, yeah, so re-watching these was really interesting and kind of the, the two big thoughts that I had that I'll put out and then we can we can discuss as we go around. But Rogue Nation, I feel like on paper, is perhaps the most even objectively measured, has kind of all the right things going in it in a lot of ways, but also feels like the most forgettable in a lot of ways out of the whole IP for me anyway. So that's that's my entry point on Rogue Nation. I love it. It's just as, as soon as I stop watching it, I immediately forget everything that happened. Uh, so we can get into why I think that might be the case. Fallout is an explosive, epic action movie. And I know, Alex, it's your favorite. And so we're going we're gonna to let you talk about that in just a second. 
but I think I have a theory why or one of the contributing factors because watching it this time I was like oh this is Christopher Nolan's Mission Impossible Mm -hmm. Uh. like this is a Christopher Nolan movie it is shot like a Christopher Nolan movie it's graded like a Christopher Nolan movie the locations are locations that Christopher Nolan has gone to in (laughs) several movies yeah the music is Christopher Nolan-y. The, are there are these montages of sort of like where music is doing all the heavy lifting and you're just sort of seeing images and it's like, oh, there's meaning happening. I don't know exactly what's happening, but there's meaning because there's momentum. Uh, the plot is confusing like the Dark Knight. There's literally a Dark Knight chase sequence where they're rerouted down. So like there's Two-Face by the end. and follow- So anyway, it's a, I think because... <laughs> Superman's oh, in it. Superman's <laughs> in it. So there's a lot of... Uh, Dark Knight, yeah, Christopher Nolan in Fallout that I think is really interesting uh, as a as a choice for this the sixth entry. And Chris McQuarrie even saying that he's the first returning director, and what he wanted to continue at least was that every movie feel like it had a different voice and a different tone. And mm-hmm. so even though it was still him, he wanted something different. And so I think there's some really smart borrowing from techniques that have been extremely well used in the Dark Knight and other Christopher Nolan movies. So those are my thoughts. Alex, tell us about these movies. <laughs> well, it's interesting thinking about Rogue Nation. I think I only saw it once. Like I saw it once in theaters and then I saw pieces of it when we made our Mission Impossible lessons from the screenplay video. But I don't think I'd rewatched the whole movie since that first one time in theaters. And I think, what year did it come out in? It's like, 2015 yeah i think at that moment i just wasn't really engaged with the franchise i think i liked rogue nation fine but i wasn't really like a mission impossible fan so i think i saw it and i was like that was good um but i didn't really revisit it and so it was it was fun to revisit that movie and realize yeah how interesting it is in the franchise it feels the most like noiry and uh you know Elsa is just like a classic femme fatale and there's something very moody and kind of gritty about the way it's shot and very dark in a lot of scenes in a way that is different from for certainly uh, Ghost Protocol and also Fallout. But yeah, I think you're right, Michael. I think Fallout feels like a really fun Christopher Nolan movie of yesteryear, you know, like (laughs) from my favorite era of Nolan, which is the you know dark knight inception uh moment in his filmography but more fun you know not you know there's more humanity maybe is, is allowed to come through than in some of those movies just just people being lovable and and funny but i think when i watched fallout it, it when i when i first saw it in theaters it was like thank you thank you thank you i've been waiting for this action movie for longer than I had realized. You know, we we talked about speed at the start of this season and there's just like what a fun ride from start to finish. Just it committed to its premise and it just did it all the way. And Fallout to me was the same experience going to an IMAX theater and watching this movie. I was having a blast from start to finish and it did carry me in that Nolan way um, where just the momentum never lets up. Every sequence is executed with such confidence. You know, I, I, other Mission Impossible movies, you have certain sequences that really hit and other ones that were like, oh, you know, I see what you're going for, but you didn't quite pull off this, you know, the way you edited this together doesn't quite feel right or the pacing of the scene doesn't quite feel right. In Fallout, it just feels like everything, even if it's silly, feels like it's just 
hitting the right notes and it just just keeps going and there's a real swagger and confidence to the way it's shot and the way it moves and so i just it's just so like viscerally pleasurable for me to watch this movie because it's just <laughs> such a great confident fun action movie and i mean with the exception of one sequence which i think we can we'll talk about which is the um skydiving sequence which feels like a waste of the fact that they really jumped out of a plane. <laughs> um, so much of this movie is grounded in the reality of Tom Cruise on a motorcycle, Tom Cruise actually hanging off a helicopter. And I think they tried to start doing some of that stuff in Rogue Nation with like, look, he's actually on the side of this plane kind of for no reason at the cold <laughs> open. Um, but this movie was like the fulfillment of what we now think of as like this Tom Cruise phenomenon, which is, no, you're going to pay to see Tom Cruise actually do insane things multiple times in this movie and the fact that he is there and is undeniable that he's there just makes those sequences just so visceral and so enjoyable in a way that i haven't felt once again for many years because cg has allowed us to not have to put actors in insane peril um so i love that tom cruise is willingly choosing to put himself in insane peril so i can return to that <laughs> 90s that 90s feeling um anyway I can go on and on, but that is why I love Fallout. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Okay. All right. Trisha, what about you? Well, I 100% disagree about Rogue Nation. I think okay. behind number one, I think Rogue Nation is probably my second favorite Mission Impossible movie because I think three and four, I really love them, um, but they are bumpy. Like the things that I like about, we and we talked about it in the last episode, there's things that I don't like about three, even though there are things that I really do like. Four falls apart in the third act, like very, very much. And um, it's a pure waste of Paula Patton and many other things. Um, and then when I w watched five this time around, I just like gave this big exhale and I was like, yes, like, oh, thank goodness. Oh, like I know what movie this is. And I like that it's still a heist movie in a lot of ways. Like, I don't think that Fallout is a heist movie. I feel like you'd have a hard time arguing that. I think Fallout is a hell of an action movie. It's like, what's the heist? They go to get the guy and he's in a truck, but most of that is just a chase sequence. Like, mm -hmm. you know, most of that is like, and it's an amazing chase sequence. Like I got up from that motorcycle chase watching it this time around and like wanted to like kick things and throw things in my house. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like ugh, we need to get to it. When the, he like goes around that thing and then starts off and you see he's going to the Arc de Triomphe. You're like, oh, come on. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. Uh, it's so good. Um, but anyway, uh, so like I said, Fallout is an amazing action movie, but in so many ways, it's like not, it's like so many thousands of miles from where the series started that yeah. it's like hard for me to appreciate it on like a mission impossible level. Um, I appreciate the hell out of it as a movie because I think it's an amazing movie. But like Rogue Nation still feels like it's got some Mission Impossible-y things in there more than Fallout does. And I love the introduction of the villain. I love the introduction of the Ilsa character. I love the heist centerpiece um, in the water tank. And then there's, you know, an amazing motorcycle chase, which is an action sequence and all of this stuff. But it just feels like it's more like even thinking about that uh, climactic 
scene at the bistro or whatever where Ilsa is there, Benji is there, he's got a bomb strapped to his chest. Like, that's more of, like, the thriller element rather than, like, everyone's just going to punch each other or, like, mm-hmm. crash helicopters into each other on the side of a cliff. Um, I kind of like that shifting loyalty, like, trust themes that are all in, in Rogue Nation. I like the noir elements, and I think that's well put, Alex. So I really love Rogue Nation, not to mention, and I haven't, the incredible Opera House, like, set piece in the first half of it. But again, that's about, like, it's more, like, tense thriller. Yeah, there's a fist fight up, like, in the fly space above the stage or whatever, Um and, and but it's really just like who is you know who's gonna shoot who and like who sees where everybody is it's more of this cat and mouse type of thing rather again than like a great big huge sequence um of like we're just gonna break every stall and sink and mirror in this restroom <laughs> and like i enjoy watching that but it's not quite Mission impossible to me. Rogue Nation's a chisel and Fallout's a hammer. Scalpel. <laughs> a scalpel, Scalpel sorry. is yes. what you're looking I was, for. I said chisel because I was picturing Henry Cavill's face. It is insane <laughs> to me that Angela Bassett... Fair. <laughs> it is insane to me that Angela Bassett says the line, you use a scalpel, I prefer a hammer. I'm like, girl, you, you prefer a hammer? You prefer a hammer. That's a crazy line for anybody to actually say. I, her character is... Not well defined in this anyway. Um, we can get to her later, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, cool. I also appreciate in Rogue Nation that they, since they are doing kind of the noir old 50s call outness that they, you know, her name is Ilsa. They literally go to Casablanca. Like those little details mm-hmm. are like fun for the you know, yeah. nerds um, of which I'm one. Brian, what are your thoughts on these two? Yeah, I actually, unfortunately, had uh, the word forgettable in my notes for Rogue Nation the first time I watched it. Um, (laughs) You're right. I I didn't forget it. (laughs) (laughs) But like, yeah, it was was, I watched it when it came out. I was like, that was good. And I'm glad that they're still making good Mission Impossible movies. But I also didn't go like after three and four. I wasn't like, yeah, we're like, it's getting better and better. and then I rewatched it when we did our LFTS video and I was like, it was fine. Like I had nothing negative to say about it really other than just no, there was nothing sort of, I don't know, stand out about it to me um, until rewatching it the other night for this. And I was maybe because I was had just watched the other four, maybe because I was just in a good mood or something. But I was like, this is awesome. Like I'm so happy now. <laughs> um, and I think it is some of the stuff you're talking about, Tricia, where it's like it, it takes a little bit more um, – I mean, a mental investment maybe to to appreciate what's going on in that movie, to appreciate the character work, to appreciate the tension that's going on, like in that opera scene, you know, it's like that is sort of an old school Mission Impossible thing where it's not about people punching each other, just as you were saying. It's about like, who's, where is he pointing? Like, he's how is he going to shoot? Oh, he's going to shoot the guy that he's trying to protect because like, that's the best way, you know, like that is really fun. Um, and then really getting into Ilsa's character, I think, like rewatching these movies now, just kind of knowing, knowing like the big set pieces of these movies and now being able to watch them and just go, what are these movies actually about? You know, I'm really, really appreciated Rogue Nation a lot this time around. And then Fallout, I loved in the theater when I saw it. And then rewatching it this time, I, I had like Rogue Nation went up a notch and Fallout went down a notch only in terms of the plot stuff that we're talking about, where I think I want, I want to get into this later in more detail, but I think for the first half of fallout, I'm like, 
what is any of this about? Like, what is anyone trying to do? I'm not really sure here, you know? But then the second half of Fallout has this, like, you know, crazy big action sequence, right? But also this crazy, like, emotional, like, ah, oh, you know, Mission Impossible Wife is back. And, um, and you know, just, like, the whole, like, closure of that character and then seeing Ilsa, like, when you are tracking who Ilsa is over these two movies, then sort of seeing what kind of place she is in, um, in, in the second half of Fallout. So, yeah, I want to get into the things about these two movies that I think don't grab me in the way that I would like, but ultimately like, I'm very happy that this is where this franchise is because it's like, if the worst thing about either of these movies is like, there are some times where I don't care quite as much as other times. If that's the worst thing, right. like, like yeah. that's pretty good, you know? And uh, yeah, excited to get into all of it. But, uh, but ultimately I like these movies get better with rewatching both of them for sure. And, and rewatching them both for this was just like, okay, I'm completely on board now. And I was already pretty on board, but I'm just like, the things that they are doing that aren't the big in your face things are actually really smart. And it sometimes takes a couple of viewings to appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. these are excellent movies. Let's just, yes. Yes. just no, no one disagrees with that. Agreed across there. the board. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, yeah, I want to underline that, that I, I'm certainly not saying one is not good and the other is good. I'm saying they're both really good and it's interesting to see the different ways in which my brain responds to the goodness of each of them mm -hmm. upon different watches. Right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And yeah, and so so I think so diving into Rogue Nation, one of the things that we've been tracking is like, who is Ethan Hunt? And is Ethan Hunt in this movie the same Ethan Hunt as the last movie? Right. And I feel like at this point, he is like, and there's sort of something interesting also that they're doing in the first act, you know, Ethan goes to the record store and has that kind of classic spy, like, we're going to say some code words and do you have the blah, blah, blah with the girl behind the counter. And then there's that moment where she's like, it really is you. Mm. And so they're sort of building up this sort of like legend of Ethan. And I think that was kind of interesting to observe that he's sort of like a not quite old guard, but there is like a, a legend around him now uh, that was, yeah, just kind of a, an interesting way to portray Ethan. And in some ways, I feel like in both of these movies, I feel less with Ethan on his journey and more like I'm watching him and like it, it's a very ineffable difference because like it's a movie of course you're watching it but for some reason in these movies kind of like what you were saying Alex where I bought a ticket to watch Tom Cruise do a thing I feel like that is coming out more especially in Fallout but there's just sort of a, a different portrayal of Ethan where I'm not as in with him as I maybe was in the earlier ones not that I dislike him or that I'm not engaged, but it's just a slight mode shift that I feel. I, I feel like it's a it's something I notice with this phase of Tom Cruise's career. All of his big temple movies are kind of about Tom Cruise. <laughs> and they like <laughs> like Maverick, you know, is so like, you know, I'm not not done yet. Movies aren't done yet, everybody. Um, and I think I think this movie is kind of the beginning of that 
period where, like, like you said, it was odd to me in this watch through when there was that moment of like, you're really him. It's like, is that a mission impossible thing or are other agents or like secretaries in awe of other agents or that doesn't seem, that seems like not cool for IMF. Everybody's like too cool for that in earlier iterations, I would think. Um, so I think there's a little bit of a weird vibe, self-referential thing of these are also about Tom Cruise kind of, and the legend making of Tom Cruise is a, one of the functions of the, these movies is what I project mm. onto them at least. Well, I, I, to me, it's, what I think is interesting is once a franchise has gone on for a couple decades, the world of that franchise in most cases has also gone on for that amount of time. So in the MCU and in like force awakens and you know, with this conversation we're talking about, it's like you have characters who have heard of the hero because that hero has been a hero for decades, you know, and especially in the MCU, it's like, these are superheroes flying around. So it's like, you can't ignore the fact that people on the ground are going to know about them. Mission Impossible, it's kind of tricky because you're like, who who does know or who doesn't know about any of these people? You know, and I think there is something about her. For me, there's something about her saying like, it's really I even had put that as a note like, oh, it's really you um, where I'm just like, oh, yeah, OK, he has he's been around for quite a while and he's done these crazy things, you know, <laughs> four times before at least. Right. Um, and so it's like it, it makes sense to sort of be like, like we as the audience don't know who. Ethan is in the IMF story world, you know? So I do think that that gives us a little bit of grounding to be like, okay, he is actually someone notable in the story world. He's not just sort of a henchman, which he is in, in fallout, like Henry Cavill and, and Tom Cruise are like the henchmen in the background of that, of that <laughs> scene, which I yeah. think is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with what you just said, Brian, about like the legend, it is sort of touching at something meta that I generally don't kind of like, um, where the movie is now more aware of itself um, mm -hmm. and how it's posturing the character as well as the star that's playing him um, toward the audience. And as you guys said, like, you bought a ticket to see Tom Cruise do a thing. The movie in that scene blurs the lines a little bit of like, is this Ethan Hunter? Is this Tom Cruise? Do you really care, audience? Like, and it, there's, you almost feel like you're losing Ethan at moments, right? Like, especially in those stunt sequences. Like, sometimes I feel like I've lost Ethan, the character, and I'm just being shown a spectacle that is incredible um, that, and a stunt that Tom Cruise is doing that is, like, going to knock me over. Um, but it doesn't, like, the stakes for what it means for Ethan, I sometimes, like, don't remember at all. Um, but in Rogue Nation... Immediately right after that, what happens is the big bad guy shows up and shoots that woman in the head right in front of Ethan while he's being gassed um, in the listening booth. And I think that's an amazingly smart screenwriting choice. Um, it, like, establishes the stakes right out of the gate. Um, and, of course, it gets Ethan captured, which brings him into contact with Ilsa for the first time. A flash forward or a flash to the middle uh, where we see a villain has stolen the only woman that Ethan Hunt cares about, like, uh, <laughs> is not the only way to get emotional stakes mm -hmm. going um, or, like, personal, making it personal between Ethan and a villain, right? Or, like, one of the, you know, one of these central antagonists in these two films. And so I just think it's really deftly done 
Um, and it drives at, you know, we we're talking about who is Ethan Hunt. It drives at this thing that Fallout really crystallizes because Fallout talks about it a lot in the text of like, Ethan cares about the one life um, mm-hmm. as well as the millions of lives. And so a one life that Ethan is, you know, a couple inches of glass away from being able to save um, that is taken right in front of him because of him, right? If he hadn't walked into that record store, mm-hmm. that woman would still be alive. The fact that she's young and beautiful is just a spy movie thing. But, you know, <laughs> um, it's still a life that is that is taken right in front of him. And I think it's just like a, an off to the races way to start this movie and set up this villain. So I, I think it's really brilliant. And I love the scene right after it where, you know, he gets captured and then we meet Ilsa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I was I was sort of taking these ongoing notes about the who is Ethan Hunt thing, right? And just sort of being like, every movie is about him, it, just as you were saying, Trisha, like saving the one, you know, it's it's about, he's, he needs to save Benji, he needs to save Luther, he needs to save the cop outside that little garage and fallout, you know? And, um, and I think, you know, if... If Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in three is I'm going, I would like to do you direct harm, you know, to your family. Um, uh, you know, Solomon Lane and and the syndicate are we're going to do we're going to kill hundreds of people or thousands of people just to get what we want, you know. So it's sort of the it's that, but on a world stage, right? The anti-Ethan. The and exactly the anti-Ethan. Um, and of course, it's easy to say like, oh, the hero saves lives and the villain takes lives. It's like sure, but but I what I like about Fallout is how much it's like really pushing, like how far will you go? You know, they have the whole flash forward to the heist and he's like, so I'm, I kill everyone. <laughs> like that's the plan, <laughs> yeah, you know? Plan. And you yeah. sort of get this, this like, is he like, he's probably not going to, but like, this seems to be the only way. And then he has to kind of pretend to be, you know, this guy. He's like, oh yeah, I, you know, I eat babies for breakfast or whatever he's saying. You know, <laughs> that line uh, made me laugh so hard. He goes, I murder women and children with yeah, smallpox. Right, right. Like, yeah. <laughs> Even if you had, would you say quite like that? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, I, I like I like the sort of pushing that it's kind of the Batman thing, right? It, it's kind of the like like you you refuse to let anyone die if you can do anything about it. So as you said, Trisha, we're going to start this duology with you know you're, someone's going to die right in front of you, and you can't do anything about it, and then we are going to ev- every time someone talks about the antagonist in this, Benji has that kind of emotional scene in Rogue Nation, but then through to Fallout, it's just like this is what they did. This these are these stakes. There are real people who, who you know who suffered as a result of this, um, and I feel like that's the thing that makes me go, oh okay, now I know who the antagonist is. Now I know why I hate them. Now I know why I want you to get them, etc. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's such a great opening. Pulls it sucked me right in, and I was like, "Oh, okay, Mission Impossible. Let's do this thing." And then, yeah, so then we get the intro of Ilsa, who's so cool. Ah, uh, uh, yes. That first fight where they fight together is so yeah. good. So great. Is yes, is very fun. I had no idea what was going on or who was who or why anyone was doing what they were doing, um, which is a theme I think th- through a lot of the Mission Impossibles. <laughs> Uh, but I was totally, but like the connection p- between them was super clear and introducing her as this badass spy, uh, like her, when I think about Rogue Nation, the things that I do remember and that I do remember being very engaged in is her and trying to figure out the trust and whose side is she on. Like they play all of that really, really well. Rebecca Ferguson is perfectly cast for all of that. Um, and it all starts in that 
that first, that's just such a fun way to introduce and make these people meet in that context of going to be tortured. The person that's maybe going to torture you is freeing you. What's going on? And you're having this cool fight scene. Uh, the way she fights is fun. Like the, there's the, the complimentary aspects of them are set up so clearly in that, that first scene that it then carries and like makes you invested, makes me invested anyway, in the two of them throughout the rest of, you know, both fallout uh, and Rogue Nation. And yeah, watching Rogue Nation again, I was so impressed with how well-designed her story is because you know, her predicament, her, her like assignment and all the, all the pressures on Ilsa in this movie are perfect for a femme fatale character because she does have to keep up appearances with the bad guy. She does genuinely have her own personal desire to finish this mission and kind of get out. And she needs, you know, things that Ethan needs in order to do that. And I, I just love how it allows her by the end of the movie to be clearly a good guy and cares about Ethan, but uh, the competing uh, pressures are, are high enough that she will have to hurt Ethan also and, and betray him and, kind of confuse him. And, and I, I love just how many times in this movie you really are just, you don't know what her deal is and it's all self-consistent by the end. When, once you understand her assignment and what she wants, it all makes sense. And I really, I think it's really well designed. Yes. And it is a, an exemplary use of like a woman spy character that is incredibly capable, intelligent, like, but also, as you're pointing out, Alex, a full person yes. where she, like, has a goal. She has agency. She is pursuing her own thing. And it's just, like, a deeply human desire, right? It's not like, I need a man to take care of me. I need this. Or, like, I actually have feelings for this person. As far as we know, like, she does care about Ethan, probably, but that's not the basis of their connection, right? They are thrown together into this situation where they have to act in certain ways. And if they care about each other, that's kind of not the point of any of it. Like Chris McQuarrie's direction in the way that she is framed and shot. And like, it's not like she's not an incredibly beautiful woman. She absolutely is. But it's like, it. it's not like a James Bond you know, like, here's a sexy woman spy, kind of, but really just a sexy woman. That's the only thing to pay attention to. Um, it's it's absolutely a more, I was going to say egalitarian look at what a woman in a spy franchise could be. So, you know, it's not like she's not ever in a beautiful dress or in a bikini in this movie. She's in both of those things. Um, but also, like, that is not her service to the movie. She is a fully rendered character um, with a ton of agency and the, the director, she is shot that way um, rather than being here to be like eye candy or arm candy for Ethan or any of the other, like I feel like pitfalls male writers and directors often fall into when writing female characters in franchises like these. Yeah. I love that in Fallout, I think that continues where she yep. she she has her own goals. She is in a position where, once again, she needs the thing that Ethan is after. And no matter how much she cares about him, it's it's her life. She's she's 
putting first and she needs to figure out how to get back in with MI6 and clear her name and not be disavowed. And that has to come first. And it's not explicitly ever a romantic connection, right? Like that's the other thing is that we keep saying they care about each other because that's really all we know about how they feel about each other. Like there's a personal connection. Is it necessarily romantic? It's not ever really made clear in these two movies. Like they don't actually kiss, right? We're like, mm. he kisses plenty of other people, but yeah, but not yeah. her. Every <laughs> other woman tries to do her best to kiss Tom Cruise, which, right. you know, yeah. respect in their own way. But like with her, it's like there is a very careful um, way that this character is treated. And yeah, they, like at the end of Rogue Nation, they she gives him a really solid hug and says thanks. <laughs> and like, that's what that is. She like puts her hand in a fist and like rubs his hair and she's like, there you go. She's, <laughs> she's like, thanks short, man. She punches you know, him yeah, in the shoulder. She, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, one, one of our patrons asked him, he said, um, how thrilling it is to see them truly represented as equals without feeling the need to comment on it. Right. And I like mm-hmm. that. Um, and I was thinking, I was like, I, I just, for some reason, these three words came into my mind about this sort of hierarchy of, of male leads versus female leads. And like traditionally, you know, especially in worse movies, like what they, need to be and i was thinking between cool interesting and sexy it's like male leads it's like they got to be cool first right and then if and then you know we'll try to make them interesting and like they should be sexy too but like it's fine like as long as they're cool right and then female leads it's like make sure they look good and then if there's time (laughs) we'll make them interesting we'll make them cool whatever right and it's like ilsa is all three of those things but she is interesting first you know and i think that is that is the thing that makes me love that character because it's like they're not afraid to be like look how good she looks look at her legs they're so long they're gonna be in this they're gonna be in 25 percent of this movie doing stuff and like that's great well and she's i would say to exactly what you're saying she's sexy last and exactly yeah. the costume design goes like a a very long way toward that because unless she needs to look like hot for some reason like in the um in the opera scene where like a gown is the appropriate thing to wear to an opera most of the time she is actually wor- wearing very practical clothing. Mm-hmm. She wears like a lot of, she's pretty like covered up for a lot of this movie and her clothes are like loose fitting. They're comfortable. They're spy clothes. The scene where she like is introduced and is going to torture Ethan. Maybe she's in like a button down shirt and some right. trousers and she's got some cool shoes, which she takes off before she does that and does that fight <laughs> scene with her bare feet and whatever. It's like, she's actually, I love the costume design for that character. Most of the time mm-hmm. she's in like, work clothes here she is in a jacket and like a right. suit this her suit at the the grand palais is amazing oh, cool. <laughs> yeah again that's very much the character is a little bit masculine and she rules right and you know not to get too much into the meta because as we usually don't do but you know tom cruise is pretty much in charge of his own movies and what happens in them and he hasn't really had many love interests in the past 10 or 15 years you know and i think that like Hopefully that's in service of what we're talking about here. What about Jennifer Connelly? I, I said many. Yeah. Like, yeah. That is obviously one. They had know, a sleepover in Madison. Yeah. notable exception. <laughs> yeah. Even, they, they stayed up and talked. Um, but, but no, but I'm, I'm saying I'm hoping that is a conscious choice in service of what we're talking about. You know, because right. look at Emily Blunt in Edge of Tomorrow, right? Cool and sexy, but interesting. Well, maybe cool first because goddamn, is she cool in that movie? But like, but you know, it is not about like look at this, look at this pretty girl that the the guy you mm-hmm. like is going to end up with and stuff. That's just not who these characters are. And I think and you know, and even now, if we've had this like closure with Jules, and I think if if Ethan does now have a love interest, he looks pretty 
cozy with Haley Atwell in the, in the trailers and stuff. But like, it feels like, okay, now we can do like, we've earned that because we, we just spent like three movies not worrying about that. And I mm-hmm. think that it, as opposed to a bond movie or something where it's like, there's three love interests in, in every bond movie up until Craig. Yeah. yeah. So we meet Ilsa and then we have this really cool high scene in the opera house. And this sort of starts to get at what you brought up, Trisha, which is, I brought up also in the first episode of like Mission Impossible movies historically have been heist movies and Fallout, I will say technically has a heist. Originally, I said there's there's none, but like they do kind of get the guy out of the truck quickly and then it's action. It's really, uh, yeah, interesting to see how these two movies kind of like bloom and evolve as they go into their second acts. And so we do have this really cool opera house I like how contained it is. There's a very good sense of space. It's like there's, you know, the pressures that we've talked about before of there's an audience. There's like, there's just really interesting uh, environment for all of this to be happening in. And so you're forced to be quiet and stealthy and, and do spy things in a spy way. There's fun, playful things with Benji where he's moving the you know, the rigging up and down while Ethan's trying to fight the guy. And it's always like putting Ethan on the back foot, which again is something that I really like about Ethan's character is that he gets hurt and he's like, oh God, I have to do that. Like, I... There's always one really big guy. <laughs> right. Yeah. <they> really, <laughs> really play that up. We talked about this in Mission Impossible 4, Ghost Protocol, where there's this sort of centerpiece heist uh, that is then followed by a bunch of action. Uh, and it kind of amounts to nothing. <laughs> uh, we technically found it like, okay, something changed. Rogue Nation, there's also a centerpiece, mid- like midpoint heist that is then followed by a lot of action. And I think there's more substance in that one uh, and that more happens in it. But it is like, there's also a lot more action where there's a car chase and then when the car chase is over, there's a bike chase uh, that <laughs> happens. And the same thing happens in Fallout where that, you know, that mini heist of getting Lane out of the truck becomes a crazy getaway car chase. And then it goes immediately into, and now another like bicycle chase. That for me is the one part in Fallout where I'm like, okay, this is a little indulgent. Like this feels a little bit like, you don't need to have narratively this much action back. Like it's 20 minutes of just people moving fast through streets. And if I recall at one point, McCory said sort of the way they approach writing and structuring these movies is what are some cool stunts and action sequences we want to do. And now let's find a story that'll make us do that in a cool order. And so that being the approach, I think they do a really good job of creating a story with fun twists and turns that get you to those places. But I do in these moments feel a little bit like, you know, the the interesting stuff that Ilsa has going on, like that kind of falls by the wayside in terms of plot mechanics to get us into these places where we can now have a lot of action and a lot of stunts back to back to back to back to back to back. But see, when the action is this good, when you actually have Tom Cruise without a helmet on riding actually through the streets of Paris on a motorcycle, followed by an amazing second car chase where now Ilsa is after them. She's on a motorcycle. They're in a really 
cool old car just going down tiny streets and over staircases like the best you know chasings i've seen in years what does it mean to say we don't need those things like i guess maybe it's what is the movie mm. here for because like you said yeah i think it is clear watching fallout these sequences are what the movie is here for and then it's like afterwards we're going to kind of very quickly figure out some ways that the Henry Cavill thing makes sense. And this you know, that's part of the weakest part of the movie for me is that what follows that whole Paris sequence when they're kind of in the sewers and a lot of things happen really fast and a lot of reversals. And then we're just off to kind of middle of nowhere cashmere. No, you forgot about the foot. Chase. There's a foot chase then that has oh, to happen. For oh, right. The foot chase, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this is getting out the expectations of yeah, what, we, what we come to these movies for. Because, yeah, you go to a Fast and Furious movie for just this and expect nothing else. Mission Impossible, we've been taught to expect more than just exquisite action sequences. They're supposed to be kind of like layers of intrigue and twists and turns. And there are stretches of this movie where we're not layering those on quickly. Mm. They're stretched out so that we can spend a lot of time on a motorcycle. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We talked about you know, I think in Casino Royale, we talked about Trisha breaking down the um, the opening foot chase and stuff, right? Of Just like how all of this is like doing character work. It's doing, you know, a lot of stuff there. And, and I've often said, like, if a movie is not doing character work or not doing plot work or not doing uh, theme work and stuff, that's okay once in a while as long as I'm entertained and that and you see that the most in action movies where it's like look the thing that needs to happen could happen in 30 seconds but we're going to have a five minute action sequence to do that and I think that's fine if you're being entertained um and this is not a a judgment in positive or negative about these movies it's just sort of a general comment on the industry which is we can do anything now in movies using led screens and cg and stuff and the unfortunate byproduct of that is they really did x is not going to hit as it would if there were no other way to get that shot right so if i only know that like they're really doing that stunt and that's not and that's not because like my Twitter feed told me before I went to see the movie, right? I don't know in the world of the movie, I don't necessarily know what's real and what isn't. If you strap a camera onto the side of a helicopter and you have Tom Cruise in there flying it around, I don't necessarily know that you couldn't get that exact same shot with him sitting in a helicopter on its stage with an LED screen in the background, you know? And of course, McQuarrie knows that. So he has a stuntman with a camera flying out of a plane with a parachute, like, you know, tumbling around people, right? To be like, let's make this shot look as ungettable otherwise as you can, right? But we've also seen these big CG superhero movies where their cameras flying around and stuff because none of it's real. And I don't think McQuarrie could do anything better th than he did. I just think it's an unfortunate sort of state of cinema that because we can do anything through special effects, then when you really do it, your mileage may vary how, how good it's actually going to look on screen. Yeah. I think that that's valid. I, I think also one of the things that I was picking up on this time around, Chris McQuarrie is a really good writer. And so these action sequences do offer moments of characterization and choice for the Ethan Hunt character, as well as for some of the other supporting characters. Ilsa often is left, you know, has to make choices. Sometimes Benji's there, Luther's there, whatever. Like there's, there's stuff for the characters to do that is of consequence. The thing that I like about Rogue Nation 
is that because so much more of the meat of the movie is about this like shifting loyalty trust situation, can we trust Ilsa? Like, you know, if we can't, like, to what extent are we willing to go through her to get to what we need? Um, you know, that motorcycle chase uh, after the water. Okay, so there's that amazing, you know, water tank heist. And then she jumps into the tank to save Ethan's life. Although that's also the only way she's going to get the thing that she needs. Mm -hmm. So she goes in there to get that. She does also save Ethan's life. Benji apologizes because he hadn't trusted her up until that point and says, I misjudged you. And then she immediately steals the thing and runs away and gets on a motorcycle. And then like he has to chase her down on the motorcycle. Again, there's much more sort of thematic uh, weight to what's happening, right? There's just been someone we were working with. There's been a very serious betrayal. Um, she hurt Benji to get that file away from him, the USB drive away from him. Then Ethan has to go after her. And so there's this open question about if he catches her, what's he going to do, right? This is somebody we like. This is somebody we were loyal, you know, like we was a member of our team up until 10 seconds ago. And so... Now, what do we do if we get, even if we catch her? Again, to what extent do we not trust Ilsa? And what does that mean? And then that chase ends when Ilsa steps into the road directly in front of Ethan's motorcycle and forces him to make a split second, but very significant decision about what he's going to do. And of course, he just wrecks his bike instead of hurting her. Um, and then she just gets back on her bike, her motorcycle and drives away. Mm -hmm. um, because she's, again, she's exploiting this potential, like, care that they have for each other. Now, there's a very similar choice in Fallout where he, like, she's directly in front of their car and she's trying to shoot Solomon Lane and he runs her over, which is really funny in the moment, um, as is Solomon's comment, that was Ilsa. How interesting. <laughs> <laughs> fallout is about something different thematically and so that choice doesn't mean as much to me at that point in that movie um fallout also has the problem of the shifting loyalty piece is like angela bassett alec baldwin and henry cavill and like Nothing makes me like Henry Cavill at any like or like his right. character. He's such a buffoon <laughs> right. from the first moment <laughs> from he the steps. Halo, yeah. From yeah. the Halo jump. Like, so there's never a, a situation where I'm like, oh no, Ethan might have to hurt that guy. Like, not I'd never care about that, other than the fact that he's like enormous. <laughs> like it seems like he probably has at least 50 pounds on Tom Cruise. Reloading his arms, his guns, yeah. the best thing he does. His physical presence in that in that bathroom fight is insane. It's insane. <laughs> Throughout this whole movie, there's no doubt. But it doesn't have the same sort of character, like it doesn't have the same sort of difficulty to it where Ethan's choices really feel, you know, hard for him really in this movie. Uh, there are other moments I guess when they do what what would you say is the most difficult? Okay, well, are, are we going to get to the cop who gets wounded? Because I think that that's interesting. That's, a nice moment. that's yeah. probably the most interesting character choice in the movie. Mm -hmm. I think the movie does double down on its, it, it states its theme very clearly. And there's even like a monologue at the end, almost very Dark Knight-like. Yes. A monologue yes. of Angela Bassett, you know, saying mm -hmm. the one and the many. 
yes, yep. we don't care about Henry Cavill's character, or Angela Bassett's character as people that we like want to be good or bad. They just kind of are doing their own thing. I mean, when they first come on screen, it's almost the movie's announcing it's almost cartoonish quality to them when she's just oh, like, yeah. make the call. <laughs> it's very, it's very big. Um, but what I think the movie is very smart about doing is always making the bargaining chips uh, characters. So you have uh, Ethan dealing with the White Widow. The bargaining chip he needs to acquire to get the plutonium is the one person he does not want to help escape custody or prison. Once he has that person, that's his bargaining chip, and that's the one person that Elsa definitely needs to kill to, in order to get what she wants. After that sequence, the White Widow says, oh, we just upped our price. I, I'm going to assume Elsa killed my men. You need to bring her in as well. They, that's that's now the person you need to bring in along with Lane to get the plutonium you need. And I, I do appreciate how the movie is always kind of what we've been talking about. The Mission Impossible movies are always best when they're making Ethan decide, make hard choices about the characters he cares about. And I do think this movie even though it doesn't feel as interesting as in Rogue Nation with that femme fatale dynamic, the movie is always careful to make sure that we're never just after the plutonium with no character at the center of the dilemma. There's always a person that Ethan has strong feelings about that is a piece of the equation of how to reach the goal. And then, of course, it culminates in the end with his wife reappearing. And now it's like this nuke is not just going to deprive half the world's population of food it's also <laughs> going to kill my my you know ex-wife <laughs> i agree and i was tuning into that and this watch through a fallout i think it's that i wish the machinations that put those pieces in the places that they are on the chessboard made more sense or like weren't quite as like you know, the White Widow has, so her brother saw some, her men died and a lot of other men died, but four of them died. And she thinks that's probably Ilsa. And so now she's decided that right. Ilsa has to be at the, like the things have changed. Like some of them just feel forced to get into those positions, but I agree it's better to have the characters in those positions because that does pull you in and makes it personal and interesting. Jumping back a little bit, cause I'm curious, uh, what you were talking about, Brian, in terms of like the visual effects and the stunts and the relationship of those things, because I think what you said earlier, Alex, is true that I'm okay watching a crazy car chase when I can see that it's Tom Cruise driving mm -hmm. Sean Harris, who's tied up and can't move and is in a car with Tom Cruise and is playing perfectly Solomon Lane, just like kind of along for the ride, kind of barely bemused about what's happening. Uh, like all of that feels real and kinetic and it pulls me in. And so a question I, I just have for like listeners is like, there's no way to not be like stuck up about this, but like as normies who don't uh, <laughs> know everything about visual effects and like can't tell in a I glance. I am a normie. You could ask me. I'm okay. right here. I didn't want to, you know, okay. But yeah, but so like to your point, Brian, like, Watching these movies, I immediately know at a glance, like, oh, 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 okay, this is this helicopter shot. They're they're in green screen. They had to do a pickup. Like, why would you do this angle there? But like, oh, but like that is an IMAX camera, and Tom Cruise is flying, and this is so like all of those things immediately jump out at me and do affect the experience of watching these movies in this kind of meta way that does kind of band aid over bumps that otherwise like narratively might 
cause problems. So I'm curious to hear from from listeners and Trisha or whoever, like how how much do you feel like you are uh, tuned into those things? Because that's those are also the moments when I feel robbed in these movies. Like you were hinting at earlier, Alex, the Halo jump. Tom Cruise actually did a crazy Halo jump. Uh, and, and they, they did like 20 takes because like they was out of focus or something. Right. And like, but, it's yeah. an insane thing. And then they cover everything up with CG. So like when you're looking at it, most of what you're looking at is CG, except for the body of Tom Cruise flying and there's wind whipping, which you could have shot like in a wind tunnel like they did when they were practicing and like probably shot it better if that's what you were going to end up doing is doing CG. The heist in Rogue Nation, where he goes underwater. I really want to love that sequence, but it's so filled with CG that it's just like mm-hmm. distracting and feels like it's not it's not a stunt to me. So these things were like being tuned in can both help and hurt your experience in different ways. And I'm curious what most people think when they watch <laughs> movies, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, it's not an accident we see so much coverage of the stunts being done while they're filming. That way we are prepped as an audience going in going, oh, they really did this. Marketing right? plays Whereas, a huge Again, role. when you watch, yeah. you know, like like an MCU movie or something like that, you're going, well, I assume none of this was, was practical, right? Until you see like, you know, B-roll, the Civil War. And you're like, oh, no, they, they really jumped out that window. They really did that. And it's like, but you have to sort of be told that that is happening uh, or... or the average film goer, Michael, has to be told that those things are, are real because it's not going to know the difference all the time. Well, and I think part of what you're identifying, Michael, for yeah, people who uh, are like us and think about these things too much and have movies ruined for us because we overthink everything uh, when it comes to visual effects. I think part of it is also just how something's shot because there are shots that are not possible to get in the Halo jump and in the water heist in rogue nation where you've got some kind of like 360 insane we're like moving with the arm and the water and tom cruise is tumbling and elsa's grabbing him and we're just going to stay on them for like this insane amount of time in a single shot that's just not possible to shoot actually underwater with actors and i think the same i think what feels so amazing to me and why i think i forgive so many of fallout's faults are most of the action sequences never go into that territory. They're really well shot. They're really clear. I always can see what's happening. They're not choppy. They're not overly edited. But I also never am confronted with shots that are just actually impossible to shoot. So you have complete sequences that are incredible that I'm sure have CGI elements in them or lots of CGI, but they are presented to me in a way in which my brain is never told this could not be shot and that includes a good deal of that final helicopter chase definitely in the end it gets pretty insane when they're crashing and falling and all that stuff but most of that chase it, i could not tell you for sure what is cg what isn't um and just the clarity of those imax cameras is just so special so i think yeah i just once again i like action movies and it's been sad that i feel like for decades i haven't like most action movies and i think it's because of this because most action movies are full of impossible shots of impossible things and so i just don't feel them and this movie for the most part like i feel and love the action throughout the entire sequence because of the way it's shot and because of 
the commitment to the in-camera elements that are undeniably in-camera. Yeah, Alex, I'm with you. I think I can't tell most of the time. Like, I, there are things that I notice in the water tank. There are things that I notice at the end of the helicopter chase and the halo jump that don't look right to me, and mm-hmm. I assume they're fake. Um, but also... I assume they're doing as much as they can in camera. And so I, there's like, I just give them good faith currency. Um, and that's, I think your point, Brian, which is like, they told me it's all real before I came in and sat my butt down in this chair. So I'm just going to believe they did the best they could to get as much of it in camera as they could. And I don't know if that's how the audience, average audience member feels, but shot to shot, I can't tell is my point. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Just like I watched the Paris car, like the motorcycle chase. And I'm like, this would be cool if any of those cars were real. He's just driving fast in an empty, like there are a few too many CG cars in that chase, but I still love it. But yeah. Anyway. Okay. Well, I will continue to wrestle with myself. Um, Me and you problems, Michael. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So here we are at the, the, the end of the franchise thus far going into dead reckoning we've talked about ethan's evolution and his team and heists versus action and all these all these different things what are our predictions and or wishes for dead reckoning part one and i guess part two as well um brian what do you, what do you want what are you thinking uh, i don't know i, I mean i I'm sort of going in very open-minded in terms of not really needing a lot. Um, I guess the things that come to mind are, I hope, um, Ilsa's legs are a character as they, as they <laughs> were in Rogue Nation, just kicking ass all over the place. I hate to say it, but I but I feel like I'm ready for Jules to sail off into the sunset, you know, at the end of Fallout. Oh, I don't like think they, we'd see her again. Yeah, they, yeah, they gave her I such hope, a... I would hope so. Such beautiful closure, and like mm-hmm. the fact that she gives permission to Ethan, like she, to or move she on. like to well more more that she forgives him for putting her in this mess <laughs> in the first place. It was all worth it. Look at my life, trauma. isn't this great? And it's yeah. like, is it? You <laughs> almost died in a nuclear explosion <laughs> multiple times. Yeah, yeah. Um, all worth it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, as I think I mentioned last time, there, there's a lot of characters uh, sort of being shown, character posters and all this kind of stuff, and I feel like that can be a problem. Um, you know, this is this seems like this is trying to do like the Infinity War Endgame thing, where it's like hey, we're get we're getting bringing people back from the old movies, and we're introducing new characters, and then you know we'll, we'll see what happens. I just hope all of that is is balanced well, and I don't feel like I'm I have to pay attention to all this. You know, we're starting to get into the franchise problem where it's like, hey, look, it's Jules. Remember her from, what, 12 years ago? You know, <laughs> like, um, if you've watched the franchise, then then obviously, like, if you if you know the franchise well, then Jules showing up in Fallout is a huge deal, right? Uh, if you haven't and you just watch the movies when they come out in theaters, you're like, what? What is going on? Um, and, you know, we're, we're bringing characters back, as we know, from earlier movies in Dead Reckoning. And so I just, I just hope the all of the character stuff is handled well and we don't spend a lot of time in the weeds with lots of new people and all their stories and what's going on with them. But we have, I don't know, six hours of movie over these two movies to, to deal with all of it. So uh, hopefully there's enough time for, for everyone to kind of have their moment, but also not 
make things too confusing, right? Um, and then the last thing I'll say is I don't know what they have talked about, but certainly this part one, part two, like, is this the end ish? Like, is this the end of a chapter? Is this the end of the, fr- it's not going to be the end of the franchise because they're not going to never make another Mission Impossible movie, but is this a closure for Ethan or for this sort of first, you know, eight movies in this franchise, which sounds weird to say. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I'm, I'm very curious and we won't know until part two, what the sort of goal is here, but I'm very curious to see what, where we are at the end of these two movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Trisha, what about you? Yeah. I've been in full dark, like ostrich mode on this. <laughs> I don't, I have not watched anything. I have not read anything. Um, so, uh, my predictions are pure speculation based on nothing. Um, but I would like for there to be one really good heist. I like, I want a heist, man. Like, please give me a really good planning stage. I want like a team assembly thing going on. I like want to know sort of what the plan is, but then I want it to go really bad and it's got to be like stealthy. There should be like masks in the heist. I like want there to be like everybody has to do a certain thing, like at a certain really narrow amount of time and it should be like physically impossible to do. And then they like pull it off. I I just would love a really good centerpiece heist. Um, that's just my hope and dream. I don't know if that's realistic anymore, but I would, I would really enjoy that. And I predict there to be, like I said, Chris McQuarrie is a good writer. Like there is, this is going to be a well-written movie. It's going to be well executed. It's going to be a lot of fun. And that's part of the reason I'm so pumped for it. Like whether or not it'll be like an old school Mission Impossible movie, I have no idea. I assume that we'll blend a few elements from like across the franchise. I've noticed some references this time around in Rogue Nation and in Fallout to earlier Mission Impossible movies. Like Vanessa Kirby being Max's daughter, which right. I missed Incredibly entirely the cast, first time. By the way, like yeah. what in the hell? Right. I was like, are you related to Vanessa Redgrave? I don't understand. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very, very well cast. But like, but but even just like, we were recently, you know, we did the watch along on Discord of Mission Impossible Two, and there's references to like Mission Impossible Two stuff, like later in Rogue Nation and in Fallout, like not the least of which is all the motorcycles. I think there's gonna be a lot of study and very well executed story and action sequences. And um, it'll probably be convoluted and hard to understand the first time around. Um, And like, it'll probably be a little too long, but it's going to be a good ride. That's my prediction. Nice. Yeah. All right. Alex, what about you? Yeah, I agree with all that. I think, because we were talking about how uh, Macquarie said that he wanted each film to feel a little bit different. And I'm thinking about what is the shift into this next one. And my impression from just the teaser images and just the general vibe I've gotten from the marketing is like epic. You know, if, if, if fallout was just the most momentum filled action ride, I feel like there's a scope I'm sensing from Dead Reckoning. It's a two-part, huge Mm -hmm. thing. I think epic might be the word, and I'm not sure how that manifests in the Mission Impossible universe, but I'm excited to see 
what like the Lord of the Rings epic is of the Ethan Hunt story. IMF is supposed to be secret. I just like, <laughs> want to say this. It's supposed to be a secret organization. This feels less and less secret as it goes along. It could also be fun and interesting if part one is more in the fallout mold of action movie. And if part two, once you know all the dominoes are in place, actually it, like we finish this Ethan Hunt franchise with the ultimate heist, like back to the beginning, you know, emotional stakes at their highest. That could be a really fun development. So I'm but I don't know. Maybe McCrory's like, we're just doing Fallout two and three. Uh, which I'm also fine with because <laughs> sure. it's, it's great action. Yeah, it was interesting, Michael, for, that you said that Macquarie wanted them to feel like different movies, specifically with, with Rogue Nation and Fallout, because it's like, yeah, it's the first time the same director is doing it. And I think it's interesting because he is easily the least stylistic director in this franchise, you know, and and I think that's a good thing because it's I think it's going to make these movies age well, you know, like, right. My, I think my least favorite thing rewatching Mission Impossible 3 was like, oh, this is like they're doing some of that cool stuff you did in the mid aughts, you know, that, yeah. that feels a little outdated now. And I think that we don't, we're not going to feel that way in 15 years about the Macquarie movies, but I'm also curious to see uh, sort of, you know, to Alex's point, like how is dead reckoning going to feel like dead reckoning? If fallout feels like fallout and rogue nation feels like rogue nation, are these two movies going to feel like sort of a mishmash of just the Macquarie-ness or are they going to kind of have their own, their own style to them? And are they going to feel separate from each other? You know, it'll be all interesting stuff to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. My cautious, optimistic read of it is that I think we might get all of the above. Like, I feel mm -hmm. like that's, mm -hmm. it feels like those two Macquarie and Cruz like would want to concoct that for us where we get, I would love some of that, you know, neo-noir erotic thriller spy spy time heistiness of the original and even the, like the what the images that i've seen of ethan he kind of looks a bit more like he did back in the original in the first one i'd love to have that the the equivalent moment from the original heist where it all like everything's quiet and it comes down to a water drop like falling or not like bring us down to that tiny moment at like the pinnacle of the heist so that you can then blow us away with your falloutness. Like, I think there's room in these two to do everything that we have come to want from the Mission Impossible franchise. And I'm going to be uh, hoping that that is what we get from all of it. Yeah. When I said epic, I think that's kind of what I meant. Like, mm -hmm. it just it's going to be big enough to contain it all somehow yeah. <laughs> is, is the hope. Well, we will find out very soon. Uh, listeners, next week, our episode on Dead Reckoning Part 1 will be available to patrons. So head over to the Beyond Screenplay Patreon to sign up and listen to that. I can't wait to watch and talk. It's going to be really, really fun. What lessons are we going to take away from Rogue Nation and Fallout? Trisha, should we start with you? Sure. I am just going to come back to that moment in the middle of the Paris chase in Fallout with the traffic cop, which she's like a meter maid, mm. basically. Mm. Um, and you don't need that scene. You don't need it. Right. Like it's it ultimately does like a tiny bit of narrative work in the way that you pointed out, Michael, where it's like, well, now these guys are dead. And why would I was mad about it? You don't strictly 
need it to go down the way it goes down. What it's doing is pure character work that is actually pure thematic work. And I remember watching this movie in the theater and there was this sense of like everybody in the theater kind of sitting up and being like, oh my God, right? And the sound, like it, you know, there was this like driving action music and all of this stuff. And then it just kind of like, when that, those doors slide open and that woman is, that what lady cop is standing right there. And it is, I I don't want to say it's simple, but it's exemplary. Like action movies, modern action movies could easily do that kind of scene. Um, Because it leads into like, it's really just this brief interval in the middle of, you know, sandwiched between two chases. You easily could do it. A lot of modern action movies just don't bother because they don't have anything to say. So there's not a thematic thing that they want to explore or a choice that they want to have a character make at that moment. And as a result, audiences tend to forget why we're watching a sequence, right? Like I, I know that they have Solomon Lane and like, I guess I hope they don't get caught by the cops or the (laughs) bad guys, the the widow's guys. Yeah. But it doesn't have the same, like, care or gravity to it as when there's just an average person that's being put into harm's way by the actions, the literal action that is taking place in the scene. And so I just, I think it's, I think it's really well done. I think it's incredibly well acted. Um, It's a nice little acting moment for Tom Cruise. He doesn't get to do very much acting. Like, not that stunts are not acting. I'm not going to say that because they are. Um, And, like, a lot of the way that, even in the dialogue scenes, I think he's given more to do in Rogue Nation, which is why I like it. But, you know, fighting with Henry Cavill in a helicopter or between helicopters for a while. Actually, I do like him in that helicopter sequence because he spends a lot of time talking to himself <laughs> in a way that is really funny. It's being pushed to the yeah. limit because he, he he's like, he puts so much pressure on himself. And this is like the ultimate, like, everything will go wrong if I don't do the thing. And I like how far yeah, Tom Cruise is playing that just like almost like beating himself up to like keep going because he, yeah. he can't fail. Well, and Chris McQuarrie's these both of these movies are good at finding the humor in and they make Ethan relatable, right? Where it's like he is not perfect. He often messes up or has to improvise or whatever. And so like he gets into a helicopter and we're like, oh yeah, he of course he knows how to fly this. And then he definitely does not know actually how to fly it, which is fun, right? Um, but all of that to say, in terms of acting, I think that that moment sticks with people and it stuck with me the first time I saw it and uh, sticks with me now. And again, it's just, if you're writing an action movie, finding out what it's about, like, what is it all about? Um, and finding places to put that into the action sequences. That is the thing to do. That is the reason why we will ultimately care. It's giving everything else meaning. And when your action has meaning, it's that much more thrilling. It's a theme. Yeah. It's great action dynamics construction. Cause we just had loud, loud, loud. And so now we can have quiet, quiet, quiet. So we're going to have loud, loud, loud again. But we're also, as you're saying, theme physically represented. Ethan is choosing to kill the bad people for the good. Like we're seeing him literally enact his belief system 
like and it's yeah it's just really well done yep yeah brian what's your lesson so i want to talk about the MacGuffin for a little bit um and to clarify what that is for anyone who you know needs a refresher doesn't know it's it's just it's a word that means a a plot device that is sending the characters forward to go do something but the audience isn't necessarily worried about it it's just we got to get the characters to go do something right so it's the lost ark it's the shankara stones it's the holy grail it's the crystal skull and dial of destiny um and and i think in these movies there's always something right we got to go get the knock list we got to go get literally plutonium like we got to you know or like do do with it we got to do a thing and we're not necessarily expecting the audience to care about that thing we care about the characters or we care about what that thing gets them in the bigger picture um and i think jj did a really interesting probably almost almost definitely on purpose like deconstruction oh, yeah. of the MacGuffin with the rabbit's foot, right? Where he is basically going, you and Ethan Hunt are not going to know at the end of this movie what that thing even was because I don't care about it. You don't care about it. What you care about in this movie is these characters and their survival and Ethan protecting his family and his friends, etc. Um, so like you literally put a line at the end of the movie. What was it? Rabbit's foot? I don't know. You know, and I think that that is smart because I think that it's showing an understanding that the MacGuffin is not. We don't really need to understand it a lot of the time. Um, and I feel like with these two movies where I engage with them the least is when the MacGuffin is the thing that I am supposed to care about the most, um, by which I mean kind of the first half of Fallout. There's sort of these layers of like, look, on an emotional level, you know this bad guy kills innocent people and you know this good guy wants to save lives, right? But we've got to get X in order to recover Y in order to sell Z to this person so that, that we can do this thing, you know? Um, and Alex, you pointed out, that a lot of times the way that they get around that is by putting Luther in harm's way, by putting Benji in harm's way, right? Like, it's like, okay, yes, we have to go do the MacGuffin thing, but now one of my friends' life is at risk and we have to worry about that, right? But there are times in, in all of these movies and in all, I think, big action movies, there are times where the only thing in my immediate understanding that I'm supposed to be caring about is some imaginary plot device that I don't really care about. Um, and I think that, that that's okay. Cause movies do that. But I think that, that it is great when they find ways to make that not be the only thing that is of interest. So I either have an incredibly visceral understanding of what this device is going to get me in terms of my emotional through line of the movie or the obstacle or, or, you know, someone's uh, life is at risk or like there's something else going on that is making me be more emotionally invested than if all I'm caring about is that these characters are going to go get a, get a, you know, mission impossible one that heist. Like, I don't care whether or not they get the knock list. I care whether or not they get caught, <laughs> you know, like that is the thing that is, that is driving you emotionally. You're not like, man, I hope they get this list. You're going, no, I hope they get out of this in one piece. Right. Because I'm so invested in these characters and the fact that yes, they want this thing over here, but I care about them more than I care about that thing. So it's interesting because my lesson is sort of the opposite, but also agreeing in some ways where, because I was thinking about also the MacGuffins in these movies and when I am caring about them more than when I'm not. And I think one of the 
things that I was extracting and I haven't fully tested this, but it seems like in the movies where there is an object that is the MacGuffin, it's a lot easier for me to be invested in them getting it versus like a person. So like we need to stop Lane and then there's like some stuff that falls off of Lane like oh Lane has a ledger. We'll introduce that right before the heist and that's what we care about now. Mm. Or um yeah, and and Ghost Protocol is sort of the same thing where it's like there's a crazy guy that wants to blow stuff up and we're kind of after him generally and the parts that fall off of him which is oh he has a scientist and he has codes and but it's kind of all about this guy. I kind of don't care about that guy at any point. The objects though for some reason, help give a, a focus, which I think is helpful in a spy movie, kind of the way mm-hmm. we talked about in like the Apocalypse Now episode, where like something just a very simple plot construction of like Apocalypse Now, where it's like, you're here, you're going to go there. And that's the movie. And having something like the knock list or the plutonium and fallout where it's there from the beginning of the movie all the way to the end, like it's all about the one thing the whole time, I find gives me something to hold on to. And I think that's part of the purpose of a MacGuffin. It's like, here's the framework so that you can focus on, like you were saying, Brian, the characters and the stuff that's actually going to like bring you in. And when there's not enough clarity in the, the, the plot MacGuffin, I find myself trying to search for it and figure it out. And so... Anyway, that was kind of my lesson. It's like, if you're going to do a MacGuffin and a Mission Impossible movie, I like it when it's there from the beginning and it's the goal the entire time, personally. Right. I think I think we're talking about two different ways you can remove the connection, right? Is is You're talking about if it's too complicated and I just don't understand what the thing is, then I'm going to be sort of emotionally removed from it. And I'm talking about the sort of more direct emotions of like, do I actually care about the thing in the first place? Right. And I think that's the sort of movies get, and these movies don't do this, but the movie movies just get so in the weeds with like the complexity of what the thing is and what they have to do and that kind of stuff that you're like, I'm, I'm so lost that I don't know what it is. So it's like, yeah, making it just a simple object like you're talking about makes it a lot easier to understand. Yes. And I always, whenever I'm talking about this with people where I've tried to explain what MacGuffins are, there are are actually two varieties from classic film. One is the Maltese Falcon, which we literally never know what it is ever. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just an object that doesn't mean anything. And the other is the letters of transit, which means something that is incredibly significant. Mm -hmm. And so it's like these movies have both kinds of MacGuffin in them. The rabbit's foot is a Maltese Falcon who who cares? No one cares. Right, right. But then plutonium is the letters of transit. We It's crystal clear what that means and what it is worth. And so I think that the movies are at their best. The knock list is also a letters of transit, mm-hmm. right? We It's told us from the beginning, if bad guys get this, lots of people die. Um, we totally understand what it means. And so I think a crystal clear uh, understanding of the MacGuffins thing, like... The rabbit's foot, they could just go, well, it's a doomsday device, which is basically what Benji does. He tells a whole little story about it, but he just mm-hmm. goes, well, it's a doomsday device. But it's not enough, right? It has to have, like, actual meaning to us and to the characters in order to, like, move into that category of being worth something on its own. Yeah. Well, I think that's why the Fallout opening does do a really good job of both kind of 
embodying the theme of the movie with he does make a choice to let the plutonium go to save Luther and then shows us the fake fallout of of the the consequences that you could potentially face by choosing the one over the many. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's big. It's a little, it's a little goofy, uh, the way that all plays out. But I, I do think it's effective in showing, you know, this would destroy Ethan if he was responsible for you know, three major cities being bombed with nukes because he made a choice that was the wrong call. Um, and so that's part of yeah. why, yeah, the, the MacGuffin in Fallout does feel more, yeah, emotionally intense because that first uh, cold open really shows us what could happen. For sure. And when it's there the whole time, that gives you an opportunity to imbue it with meaning. In the original Mission Impossible, his whole team dies trying to get the stock list. Right. Luther, right. like all that. So that by the end, you're like, no, you've been trying to get this thing this whole time. And it's, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Okay. And take us home, Alex. What's your lesson? Um, so my lesson is kind of a question of when when does it make sense for a franchise to do the Superman Batman versus Superman thing, which is like, remember in the last movie when you blew up a huge area like that has consequences. And I think I was a little thrown off rewatching Rogue Nation where we had the whole Senate hearing or whatever with Alec Baldwin going through like, look at this heist you did. Look at this heist you did. Like, look at all these crazy things that happened. I think because and then there's also this effort to justify the 60s goofiness of the IMF by trying to make people in the world of Mission Impossible acknowledge it and say, you're you guys in Halloween masks, you know, you're out of control. I almost I almost wish films like this where the franchise is built on admittedly kind of outlandish things like these amazing masks that just look like a human um, <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't like call attention to the fact that they're in kind of a strange universe and just commit to it. Like just the IMF, the impossible, the impossible mission force is just a thing. Yep. And people in the world aren't like, wait, that's what it's called. Like in Mission Possible 3, when, when he tells his wife, yeah. she's like, wait, you got to be kidding me. And I just I think it's just the, my one issue with some of these movies is like, it's a franchise thing. It feels like you've been around long enough. You've got to start now reflecting back on the earlier movies and trying to like incorporate them into a real world. And I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. I think it does make sense for there to be this high level tension uh, with the CIA. You know, it, it creates conflict. It creates situations like the Angela Bassett, whatever she's doing. Um, so I, I get why you want to have you know, B plot, C plot in that world of the organization. But the IMF is so goofy that I almost just don't want to call attention to it. And I think Rogue Nation was in an interesting place. And and even the way it concluded where Alec Baldwin is given that speech of like, Hunt is the very embodiment of destiny. It it's like, where where are we landing here? Is this is this a real world or is this like a goofy world? And yeah, what what are we doing here? So that's not really a lesson. Maybe it's a franchise question of, you know, do franchises have to do this at a certain point? Acknowledge the city destruction that happened in the previous superhero movie because Marvel did it too. It was like, you know, you lifted up Sokovia. Like, how dare you? Um, so I just don't like. Does anybody like that? Does it, does it <laughs> enhance? Does it enhance our experience, or do we just want to 
believe in a world where entire countries are lifted up and that's just part of the world. It's definitely <laughs> in vogue at that time. And you yeah, know, definitely. I think of dealing with as culture evolved, you know, the cultural baggage that comes from having a legacy thing for you know, bond did like all of them. I feel like had to like do some inward looking and sometimes yeah, it very similar came out skyfall like scene right. where there's like an inquiry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I want to add one more prediction or more question for Dead Reckoning. Will Ethan be disavowed? Because has he ever not been disavowed? (laughs) Like in any of the movies, does he ever not go rogue? Two? Will IMF stop existing again? Right. Like... Yeah, I kind of want them to not dissolve IMF anymore. Can we just... (laughs) Just like let it be. (laughs) Well, who's in charge now? Because Alec Baldwin dies in Fallout, and Angela well, Bassett is in charge now. You haven't seen the teaser trailer, Trisha? No, I don't know. Oh, oh, okay. It's Kittredge. Oh, it's Kittredge. He's back, right? But is he a part of that? Or is but it is he? Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. I am excited, actually, just to see Kittredge again. I just want to listen to Kittredge so to say things. I want them to turn the camera, like, Dutch it all the way. Yeah. I want him manning a radar station in Alaska by the end of the day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tom Cruise is going to make a face at him that makes like a muscle twitch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be Love great. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm here for it. I am here for it. Uh, what else have you guys been watching? Brian, what have you been watching recently? Um, so I just burned through all three seasons of the other two. Uh, which is a show on Max, um, and the the main characters, the other two, are these twenty somethings, uh, man and woman. Uh, they and they are the siblings of a thirteen year old kid who becomes an overnight Justin Bieber pop star, basically. So their lives are already just a mess, and they they can't figure their stuff out. And then their thirteen year old brother becomes like way more successful than they've become in their twice as many years um their mom is played by molly shannon um who also starts to become famous so that that becomes you know its own thing um ken marino plays uh the 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 kid's manager and he's great just doing his sort of desperate ken marino thing um and uh, and yeah it's it's interesting the the show i think is at its best when that setting is just the backdrop for the show and you just really care about like what these characters are going through. But then also that setting allows for all sorts of like fun celebrity cameos and like weird events that you wouldn't get if they weren't in this like weird situation that they're in. Um, so yeah, I, I really liking it and it's sort of absurd at times. And then it's also one of these shows that every once in a while is like, Hey, guess what? We're going to do like an actual real talk, emotional thing here. And you're like, I was not expecting that right now. Uh, so it's, in that sort of quirky office parks and rec way where it where because it's so sort of absurd that when it's not it's suddenly like is is jarring in like a really cool way so yeah the other two on max nice cool all right alex what have you been watching i am starting season two of the bear on hulu uh which is you know great show no uh, if you watch season one yeah i only watched the first episode so far okay, so- um but i am happy to report that it is it is back and is great and i just I think one thing that's standing out for me going back into the show is just, I think what makes it so special is the amount of love you feel the creators have towards the characters. Um, There's like a really, it's like, it's both a very rough Chicago, stressful, crazy environment, but there's a real love beneath it all. And there's a moment in the, in the first episode of season two where a character just like smiles really big, for an extended shot because they're so happy about something that, something that just happened to them. And in the midst of like an otherwise kind of like cynical Chicago, stressful environment, those moments 
feel even more special and earned. Nice. Nice. Okay. Trisha, what have you been watching? Yeah, um, I have a submarine movie for you guys. Uh, <laughs> Another one. <laughs> I know. I keep finding more, and then I'm like, well, I have to watch this one now, and I have a whole brand about it, I guess. Um, no, but I, I saw uh, this movie Below from 2002. Um, it's directed by uh, David Tuhi, which is um, – the director of Pitch Black, which is another one of my favorite movies, um, with Matthew Davis, Bruce Greenwood, Olivia Williams, and Holt McCallany, um, are all in this movie, as well as Zach Galifianakis in like a minor role. This is like a period film. It's set during World War II, and it's a horror movie, also, kind of. Um, I don't know, man. It was really scary, actually. Like, but I really, really liked it. I mean, there were stretches of it that I was like, you know, kind of halfway not watching because um, they were so upsetting to me because it, I mean, it's just like it's, you know, this movie was sort of like pitch black. Um, like, I'm not going to say it's particularly sophisticated in its like horror techniques, but there's like more to it in terms of characters than there needs to be. Like it's better than it needs to be for sure. And I don't know. I just really liked it. Like Pitch Black I love. And this movie I also really, really liked. So uh, it is a horror movie. Um, I'm not going to say anything about where it goes. Is it below? Definitely takes some <laughs> unexpected twists and turns. <laughs> it doesn't go above. We'll put it that way. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I just, I really liked it. So uh, Below from O2. Nice. nice. Really want you to make an erotic thriller period submarine heist movie. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm on All it. Of it. I'm would, on it. I would pay lots of money to, to see that. Co-written by Darren Aronofsky. <laughs> I am late to the party, but I watched the movie The Handmaiden. Uh, oh, the Korean Michael, film. Michael. And I knew like very little about it. And I think that's great. So I don't want to say too much about it, um, except watch it. There's a lot of it's it's seduction and thrilling and 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 just so many things. I don't know. I can't. I feel like I can't talk about it without like spoiling everything. Um, but it was like a an emotional ride. It was. It's rare in a movie where I literally have no idea what's going to happen next. Yep. Like completely jaw dropped. Like, wait, what could possibly? Wait, what? Uh, so if you like those feelings, uh, watch The Handmaiden. It's really, really good. Yeah. Very, very sexy. It yes. is. Yes. Be prepared. Don't watch it with like your parents or your children. <laughs> or, I mean, just, yeah. <laughs> it is a sexy movie. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting and cool also. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> but it's sexy first. I sexy, to say. sexy first. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, all right. Well, this has been our conversation about Mission Impossible Rogue Nation and Fallout and the whole Mission Impossible franchise. Uh, I think we've discussed a lot of really cool things and we will, it's going to be so hard to talk about dead reckoning and, and bring all of this through, but I think it'll be, there's a cool framework in place for us to watch and react and pick that apart, which I'm very excited to do 
next week. We're all singing together, right? Yeah, we're all going to be in the yes, same IMAX theater. Wait. And then we will yes. walk out and not talk to each other. Somehow. Yeah, yes. Just, just to hold our thoughts for 24 hours until we can record. Yes. And then Alex is going to text me the afternoon and the next day and say, I'm going to go see it again before we podcast. Do you want to come? And I'll say, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not out of the realm of possibility. <laughs> Do we need a seating chart? What's the optimal? Listeners, design us a seating chart with the four of us. What is the order that we should be sitting in when we're watching? Dead Reckoning. Uh, this is something I'm going to need to think about. <laughs> I want to sit as close to Alex as possible because his he is infectious as a as a co. Just sit under his chair. <laughs> <laughs> I am a reactor. I am a audible reactor to movies I am enjoying. It is true. I feel like the best example of that was I think it was Fast Five or was it Fast Six that we saw in the ArcLight Theater and it was just the right crowd that was ready for just an absurd fast movie and i feel like you were leading the charge of like giggling <laughs> and laughing at the absurdity and like the crowd just yelling kiss kiss whenever the rock and yeah that was when i knew we were in the right crowd right. when yeah. they were yelling they were yelling kiss at the rock and vin diesel yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway amazing uh we want to say a big thank you as always to the patrons that make this show possible thank you to our producer vince major to our editors donovan bullen caleb berg graham harther and eric schneider I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and send us a seating chart, and we will see you <laughs> in the next episode, our patron exclusive for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, part one. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.